We are just so glad that you are here with us this morning. As Cody mentioned, my name is Brayden. Uh, my students always laugh at me because I have the same line, but if I haven't got to meet you yet, I am the uh, student and college pastor here at Westside, and I am so excited to be able to bring the word to you this morning uh, for just the opportunity to preach. Merrick, our pastor, is out on vacation, or he was out on vacation this past week and today, so he went home to visit some family uh, on both sides, his family and his wife's family. So I know there's been great for them, for the kids, to see the grandparents and everything. And of course, you know, while he's been gone, we switched offices. I'm sure he wouldn't mind, you know, gave me the, the bigger, the nice, you know, you know. He actually gave me a week of vacation on the books. It's perfect. You know, now I got an extra week for whatever I want. So, you know, I've made a lot of big changes. I'm sure he'll get on to me for a couple little things whenever he gets back come tomorrow, but... It, it is what it is, you know. If you leave on vacation, you're susceptible for those things. But we are continuing in our series in Acts uh, this, as we've been walking through this book this summer. The idea of the movement beginning, the early church starting and seeing how the Lord and the Spirit moved in their midst. And we are just continuing that today. And we're actually close to pausing this series uh, once school starts back and kind of fall hits, and we're going to move to something else, but we really love, have loved walking through this book of Acts this summer. And before we really dive in, I kind of want to pose the question to you. Whenever you think of a game changer, what do you think of? Like, maybe you actually think of like a real game, you know, like a, a key player, or maybe somebody gets hurt, a big play, or, or a mistake, and you, you're watching, and you're like, that was a game changer. Like, they can't come back from this, or they're going to come back. You know, I don't know. We have a lot of other things that we call game changers, though, right? Like, there's the, I don't know, salt on watermelon. Like, it's a game changer. It ups your watermelon game, you know? I've heard this. I don't understand it. Butter on Pop-Tarts? Like, I, I don't know if you're those people. If you are, cool. I've never, like, been able to wrap my head around it. Like, I don't know what side you put the butter on. It makes sense, I guess. I mean, you toast Pop-Tarts, but... I don't know, but I know I'm going to get judged for this, but the truest form of a game changer, ketchup on your mac and cheese, all right? You don't knock me until you've tried it. It is delicious, all right? You add a little ketchup, it adds a little tang, it's great. So everybody go home, your mac and cheese today for lunch, add a little ketchup, and you at least walked away with something this morning. We are looking, and we're starting in Acts chapter 9, and if there is a game changer in the book of Acts, apart from like the, the miraculous work at Pentecost, this is it. This is Saul's conversion, the most important conversion in the history of the church. And we see that this is a game changer. I've entitled this sermon this morning, A Life Changed by Jesus, because we will see a man radically changed by the power in the name of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that it has ramifications to us today. It, it's huge. And to catch you up with where we've been, in, in Acts 7, everything kind of went awry. Stephen was, was martyred and killed, actually, on the authority of Saul, who we're going to read about today. And after that, he begins to ravage the church, especially in Jerusalem. And it causes them to be spread. And, and we've looked last week how the gospel spread to, or two weeks ago, how the gospel spread to Samaria. And last week, how it, how it made its way to an Ethiopian eunuch by the, by the faithful hands of Philip, just a layman in the church. 
And Luke, who's writing this book of Acts, so eloquently puts it, but Saul. Like, this antagonist of this story, this, this rival of the early church, is still working, and he rears his head at the beginning and in this passage. This passage is broken up, and we're going to walk through it in kind of four different sections. It's the way that we see it and what happens in Saul's life. But before we even jump to the first verse, I kind of want to pose this question to you. A lot of the book of Acts has been narrative for us. So we, we've talked about, I've said it, Merrick has said it as we preached. It is descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive writing. It, it's telling us about the events that happen, and they may or may not you know, directly say, this is how your life is going to happen. I want to ask you this morning, is Saul's conversion abnormal? Have that thought rolling around in the back of the head, like, is this a special case? Or should this be true for, for all of us? And I think that question gets answered as we walk through this passage and we see kind of the, the, the mode in which Saul gives his life to Jesus. Before we dive into the text, I'm going to pray for us. So bow with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you so much for today, God. I thank you for the opportunity and the blessing that you've given me to preach your word. Father, I pray that I just speak your words and not my own. That I just hide behind you, Jesus. Father, and I pray that every ear and heart is turned toward you in this time. We know that whenever your word is opened, you are trying to speak to us, Father. I pray that we listen. Jesus, I pray that, that you tug on heartstrings. Spirit, I just ask that you move across this room in this time as we look to a game changer of a conversion. A life that was radically changed for your sake, Jesus. Father, Lord, again, I ask that you preach through me, that you use me as your vessel. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So like I said, we are going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're walking through verses 1 through 31. And this section of Scripture is really broken down into four different parts. And we're going to start in this first part, which is Acts 9, 1 through 9. And it goes as such. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he found anyone who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them back bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. As failing and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And, he, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood there speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. So, so we start this kind of epic tale of a man who was dead set on a mission. And we see this, this first section of this passage, we see that the predominant theme is this. Saul is confronted. Paul is confronted. Like, he is put up against 
Jesus, and Jesus is standing against him on his road to Damascus. And I think to fully understand why it had to happen in such a radical way, we need to understand who is Saul. Like, who is this man? We've been introduced to him. This is our third time in the book of Acts. The first, like mentioned, is the death and the killing of Stephen, the martyr Stephen. You see, Saul there is being overseeing the Acts. Like they, they walk up and it says, there's a young Pharisee named Saul, and they laid their coats, their garments down at his feet. This was a tradition of saying, we are doing this on like your behalf. You are our governing body as we murdered this man, Stephen. And then we see moving forward that he then spearheaded the attack on the church. It said that he began to ravage the church that caused them to spread and to disperse from Jerusalem. You know, we saw that God used this in a holy nudge to push them to continue that Acts 1-8 mission. But Paul and Saul, same person, I'm going to, throughout the service, I'll keep saying the names interchangeably. They're the same guy. Well, I'm going to try to say Saul because that's how he's referred to here, but I'll slip up. I'll just go ahead and let you know. But we see that, that Saul is the spearhead of this event. The antagonist to the Christian church. The one that pushes them and, and wreaks havoc among them. And then we see that like his hatred for this group grows in this passage. He says he is still breathing murderous threats. Like the, the imagery here is a war horse who is getting ready for battle. Like just angry and, and ready for the fight that is about to become in front of him. And we see that he's no longer just content with ridding Jerusalem of these Christians. He is wanting to spread his attack on them just like they are seeking to spread their belief. Like Damascus is not a, an hour's journey. It is 150 miles, a week's journey on foot, which is probably the way he traveled to get there. Like he was dead set on chasing these people down. So much of the fact that he went to the Sanhedrin, he said, I want to get extradition papers. So whenever I find them in Damascus, in the synagogues, I'm going to bring them back here in chains. See, the, the Christians at this time, they didn't believe they were just a different religious group. They believed they were still Jewish. But they were the Jews who, who knew the Messiah. So they, they went to the synagogues. They preached in the synagogues. They were just answering what the prophecy was about. But Saul looked at this as heresy as the ultimate attack against his God. And we see that this is the passion and the zeal that he chases these people down with. And hear me in this, Saul did not believe he was doing anything other than protecting the name of Yahweh God here. He, he was raised in Jewish culture. He, he was taught and he was learned from the, the head of the Sanhedrin a man by the name of Gamaliel, the, the one that everyone wanted to learn from. This is who Saul learned from. He was an up-and-coming Pharisee, the one that they knew he was going to be great in their midst. He, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he calls himself later on in Ephesians. And he says, I am doing the Lord's work by stopping this heretic, Jesus. He didn't believe that Christ was, that Jesus was the Christ, that He was the Messiah. 
I mean, how could he have been? One, he didn't come in the way that they all expected him to. They didn't make Israel the, the nation, the reigning power, like, like they expected the Messiah to do so. But more so than that, Jesus was crucified. There is no way that the Messiah would have died in such a way, in such a horrific and embarrassing way. He believed Jesus to be a heretic, and everyone who proclaimed his name, he saw them as enemies of God. His chasing down and his zealousness for the, for the attack on the Christian church was just him fighting for what he believed in. That shows us this truth. Well, often we, we hear in our culture, just sometimes it seeps into the church, that we all have our own truth. And if we devote ourselves wholeheartedly to it, if we're sincere in our belief, then that is good enough with what we pursue. Paul here, Saul here was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. We, we paint this man as an enemy, but he was just doing what he believed was right. But he had gotten it so wrong. He didn't know the truth. He couldn't stand up to the fact that Christ was the Messiah. And in fighting against him, he was fighting against his own God that he said he believed. He was ravaging the church. And this is why this, this epic event of his conversion had to take place this way. This passage he actually shares later on in the book of Acts two more times. This is Luke's kind of third party account of it. But he himself speaks to this later on. And he speaks it to, we're going to look in Acts 26 here in a second, as he's speaking it to King Agrippa about his own conversion. But looking again at what happened, at the, the blinding light in verse 3, it says this, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Again, like I said, he, he gives his own words to this in Acts 26. And he says this, at midday, O king, the man he was talking to, he says, I saw on the way a light from heaven that was brighter than the sun. It shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in my native Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So you see that Saul's account here takes this, it gives us a little bit more information to this. First off, the fact being that of what time of day this happened. I think oftentimes we think of this blinding light and we think, oh, it just took him by surprise. It was at night. I mean, we've all been there. Your, your husband or your wife turns on the lamp whenever you're not really ready to wake up in the morning and it kind of shakes you, you know. But this isn't so. Like, this is noonday sun, the, the brightest part of the day. And he's saying, the glories of Jesus in this moment, moment shine so much brighter than the sun itself. It blinded me and my, my people. He explains further that the people around him did not understand this voice because he was speaking to me in my native Hebrew tongue. They, they, they all, as we see in Acts 9, you know, they all saw the, 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 the light and they heard something. But they didn't see Christ himself like Saul did. They didn't understand what Christ was saying like Saul did. And we see even the, the extra verbiage that he says of what Christ spoke to him. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I think to fully, again, wrap our heads around this, we need to understand what is a goad. 
Right, this is a farming community. A, a goad essentially is a long, sharp stick, probably out of wood, maybe metal if you're a little high class, but it was used for prodding oxen. Right, if you had your oxen hooked to the plow and they started to get lazy, they, they would poke a, a, with their goad. You know, there's parents who do this to your children. You know, if they're kind of slacking on their, their dishes or whatever, you poke them with it. You're like, come on, pick it up. You can do better than this. You know, go clean your room or else I'm going to go get my sharp stick and get after you. Like, this is what he's saying. He's saying, how long are you going to fight against this, this prickling that you have been feeling for some time? What is Jesus saying here? He says, Saul, I have been convicting you for some time now, and how long are you going to kick against my conviction? There's not a doubt that this at least started at the martyr of Stephen. That his death, as he looked on Stephen, the man who died, whose face was glowing like that of the angel. As he looked on Stephen, the man who died, who proclaimed, cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. As he looked on Stephen, as he said, Jesus, I see you standing at the right hand of the Father, ready to receive me. As he looked on Stephen, a man who was willing to die for the man of Jesus Christ, because he knew he was Messiah. There is not a doubt in my mind that that began the, the, the conviction in Saul's life, as he saw a man so sold out to the cause of Christ. But even more so, as he continued to, to chase, as he continued to, to hunt down these Christians, more and more people willing to die, willing to go to prison for the, the name of Jesus. It had to be eating on him. What is the validity in this that people are willing to die for this man's name? Like, like why not just say, oh, never mind, it's not real. Like, he had to have been questioning Am I really doing the, the will of the Lord? Why are these people so sold out to this thought? We see that Saul was a man that lived under the conviction of the Lord and just did not surrender to it. And I know from personal experience, that is a miserable place to be. I don't have any kids of my own, but I do have some nieces. And honestly, one of the worst things children can do, in my opinion, again, not my own kids, but whenever they are refusing to go to sleep. Like, they're tired, you're tired, and they just refuse to go to sleep. Like, it's miserable for everyone. They're in a bad mood because they just need to go to bed. You're in a bad mood because they're in a bad mood and they're making it work. You know, it's just like, it, it's, it's so frustrating. I remember getting on to the, my nieces, just trying to, if you would just lay down for two seconds, you would be out like that. But, but they, they fight against it. It's so frustrating. That is the life of a, of a person who lives under the conviction of God and doesn't surrender to it. They're miserable. They make the people around them miserable because they know that something is better for them, but they're either too scared or too afraid to surrender and to submit to it. That is Paul here. He's being confronted. He, he, Jesus throws him to his knees with this blinding light and says, you are on the wrong side of this. I mean, just imagine as Paul cries out, Saul cries out, who are you, Lord? Like he knows immediately that, okay, this has got to be at least somebody with some authority over me. He says, who are you that, that's calling out to me? And the response of, I am Jesus. 
Like immediately in his head, he's thinking, well, I am dead. Like, all right, I picked wrong. And not only him thinking, like, I've, I've been persecuting his church, and he stands on behalf of his church. He says, you're persecuting me. You're not just persecuting the, these followers of mine. An attack on them is an attack on me. And you are going to lose this battle. Imagine the fear that overwhelmed him. Imagine the anxiety that overwhelmed him, that brought him to his knees. And we see what Christ says. He says, get up, go into the town, and I will send more word to you in a little bit. But we see as he gets up, his sight is, is gone. He, he can't see. We see later that he has scales over his eyes. This is mimicking not only his physical blindness, but his spiritual blindness to the truth of Jesus the Messiah. And he's brought by hand in, in a no doubt humiliating fashion to sit in a, in a town and wait to see if the Lord has grace on him or has mercy on him. He says he's praying, probably begging God, please just, just forgive me or make it quick. Saul, on his way to Damascus, is confronted by the gospel. Keep reading with me as we move into this next section. Starting in verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he replied, Here I am, Lord. Man, how awesome of a response. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. Great directions. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus, a man named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision that a man named Ananias will come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he is here now with authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, then rose and was baptized. In 19a, it says, And taking food, he was strengthened. So we, we see that this next part of this, this tale. First, we see that Saul was confronted on the road to Damascus. And then we see this next issue where Paul is commissioned in this fight. Saul is commissioned for the ministry that he has been set before him. And he is commissioned by a man named Ananias. Now this isn't the same Ananias that, that we looked at in Acts chapter 5. Obviously that guy dropped dead, if you remember, him and his wife. This is a different man. It's a, just a disciple of the church of Damascus. He was not ordained. He was not the head of that church. He was just a faithful churchgoer. A layman, an attender. And Jesus and the Lord appear to him in a vision and say, 
Ananias, I have this task for you. You're going to go to this house, and there's a guy from Tarsus there. His name is Saul. And I absolutely love Ananias' response. Like, he comes back and he says, Oh, God, it's okay, man. You must not have understood. This guy, Saul, bad dude. Let me tell you about him. He's the guy who's been wreaking havoc in your church in Jerusalem. He's the guy who came here to do the same thing. Like, he's going to bind all the Christians, all of your saints, all those who proclaim your name up, and he's going to take us back to be prisoned or killed. Like, that's who this guy, Saul, is. Guy, uh, you know, Jesus just responded, Oh, I didn't realize. Oh, scratch that order, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, if I would have known, I'm sorry. We would have, you know, let's just leave him there. He's cool. No, that's not Jesus' response. No, that's not the Lord's response. But how often is that our reply to the Lord? Hey, I have this co-worker that I've put in your way for for weeks, for months, for years. He's the one that I want you to go to. But God, I hear them talking at the water cooler about what they do on the weekend. He's not going to be receptive, trust me. I have this family member, a guy I know, I've said, I've barked this tree too many times. He's turned off to it. Like, it's fine. I have this, this friend, this classmate. What are they going to think of me, all right? This is going to really, rep, you know, I need to keep a certain level of status so I can proclaim your name more, God. You know, like, I don't want them to, to think of me some, some lower way. Or, you know, the idea of like that. We, we often come to God trying to inform Him of the task that He has put upon us as to why, why we can't. As to why we, we have an excuse not to. Whenever I think in a lot of times we mimic Ananias in this, we're scared. And don't get me wrong, Ananias had a right to be scared in this moment. This was a terrorist that God was telling him to go talk to. This was a man who no doubt he at least knew of people that this guy murdered or imprisoned. He maybe was affected personally by his just fierceness. But we see Ananias' response in his fear even. He said, yes, Lord. And we see in, in verse 15 and 16 the, the summary of what would be Paul's life. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He is going to carry my name before the Gentiles. That's the first time in the book of Acts that they see and that is said that the, the gospel, the kingdom of God is also meant for the Gentile, not just the Jew. Christ says, Paul is the one that I have chosen to reach those. He's going to reach kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He says, Paul is going to be a mighty force for my kingdom. And he is going to suffer a lot as he is that mighty force. I mean, this is preaching against health and wealth just in two verses. But we see this commission that is laid upon Saul by the man of Ananias. He gets to to this room. He gets to the, the house. He sees a man who no doubt he has distaste for. A man who has crept over and is blind. And he could very easily just walk away. He's no doubt known or heard the stories of how nasty this man was. But we see one of the sweetest forms of grace in the New Testament as Ananias walks up to a murderer and says, Brother. Ananias' name means the Lord is gracious. 
That's how it's translated. And how much of a vessel is he of that graciousness as he looks to a man who was a terrorist some four days ago and he says, Brother, I have come to to help you regain your sight and to give you spiritual sight, to give you the Holy Spirit. And we see that he does just that. The scales fall from his eyes. He's filled with the Spirit. He's baptized. He's proclaiming the name of Christ. And Paul takes on his commission. He takes on the ministry and the task that Ananias has told him is from the Lord. And he says, this is your new life now. Paul was confronted by Christ and his gospel on the road. And he was commissioned by Ananias in this house. And read with me further as we continue to look into this conversion. Verses 19b through 22, they say, For some days he was with his disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying that he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. They said, is this not the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem and called upon us who call on the name of the Lord? He has come here to do the same. He is going to bring them bound before the chief priest. But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul was confronted. Saul was commissioned And we see here that Saul was changed. Immediately, we see the change in his life. A man who some five days earlier was imprisoning people who proclaimed the name of Christ. And here he has made the 180. And he himself is proving to other Jews, Jesus is the Messiah. Paul met the Savior of the world and it changed him. So my wife is actually out this morning. She went to a, a, a wedding over this past weekend of some friends back in Louisiana. And, you know, marriage is, is fun, but marriage shows you a lot about yourself, if we're honest. Like, what you learn about yourself in the first year, first few months of marriage is pretty telling. You know, Emily's only told me I've always been great from the beginning, so she's not here, you know, I've been good at it. She said, other people just need to look to me. But, but it changes you. And it should. Like you no longer are just an I. You're a we. You're an us. You know, I remember one of the most things that I was most nervous about is like now I'm going to be held accountable to the Lord of how I lead Emily. Like my life is forever changed because I bound myself to her. And, and, And walking away from a wedding, can we really say you were really married if you leave your ceremony and act no different than you did two days before? Like you still hit on random people at at a restaurant. You you still go and you're not loyal to your wife. You you sleep with whoever you want. You're not bound to this person. You don't live in the same house as this person. Like, is that truly a marriage? Can Can you really say you're married if by no form of the fashion you have changed because of your betrothal to this person? Like you went through a ceremony, but your life is no different. This is what God is showing us in this passage. He was changed. America said it before. If you you came to me and said you got hit by an 18-wheeler two days ago and you had no signs, I would have to say, I don't know if I believe you, buddy. 
Even if you were in the church, I may have to call you out in your lives. Don't miss me on this. Salvation cannot happen apart from transformation. We've believed in th- this lie that, that we've, we've learned, especially us who grew up in the churches. I gave my life to Christ, and I did not change that much. That's just not true. It shouldn't be. I know this for myself. I was saved from a church pew, and I was radically changed, even though it, it may not have looked like it at, at first glance. But I've heard testimony after testimony of, of my friends, my family, or people that I've got to walk through with similar stories of mine, and everyone is the same. They, my parents came and said, Braden, I see a light in you that I've never seen before. You are different. You are changed. And we cannot come into relationship with the Savior and the Lord of this universe and not be changed from it. We see the radical change in Saul. Like a a man who, who hated the name of Christ and now he's proclaiming it. There's some people who who argue against this blinding light experience, saying that that the idea of this was really just a seizure that Saul had on his way. Or maybe he had a heat stroke because of his long journey, and he didn't take adequate breaks. So he had a heat stroke and fell down. Why? I mean, that's complete foolishness. But if it was heat stroke, if it was seizure that caused a terrorist to turn evangelist, then praise the Lord for seizures. Like, Like... This man was shook to his core from his encounter with the Lord. Not only was he confronted, not only was he commissioned, he was changed. And we must be too whenever we come into relationship with Christ. There's no way around this. As we wrap up this story, continue reading with me. Picking up in verse 23, it says this, When many days had passed, and I'm actually going to stop here. I have this for the screen, but I'm not going to put it on because we're just going to explain this. This many days in Galatians 1, Paul shows us that this is about three years. All right? So the many days is a little bit of an understatement. In Galatians 1, specifically in 17 and 18, he's talking about, Hey, for three years I was in between Damascus and Arabia. I was being sent out, and he talks more, and he says, For the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, bestowed upon me his revelation. Like, there's a reason we call Paul the Apostle Paul. In order to have the, the, the house and the role of an apostle, you had to see and be taught by the risen Christ. This was this moment where, where Paul received that. So for three years, scholars debate on why it was three years. Maybe it was an equal time as, you know, for the same amount as the disciples were on the, the, under the discipleship of Christ, you know, for the three years of his ministry. Maybe he just saw the work that was ahead of him and he said, I need to be well prepared and well learned in this subject so that I can, I can go forth and do the ministry that the Lord has bestowed upon me. But we see that he took his calling and his commission seriously. And we see that in some days, some three years later, we see in Damascus that the Jews plotted to kill him. In verse 24 it says, But their plot became known to Saul, because they were watching the gates by day and by night in order that they may kill him. 
But his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in a wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples there. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him in and brought him to the apostles. He declared to them about how on the road Paul had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he preached boldly the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, but they too were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and living in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church multiplied. We see, as Paul comes back from his learning experience, he not only was confronted, he not only was commissioned, he was not only changed, but we see throughout his life, the story of his life is this, he continued. He continues. If there was ever reason for a man to kind of let off the throttle a little bit, he kind of had a fair case. He comes back to Damascus and the people there want to kill him. All right, not too, you know, he's done it to other people, not too shocking. So he flees through a basket and a hole in a wall. Like, how embarrassing does that have to be? Imagine the guys who held the ropes. Like, a lot of, a lot of power was in their hands for all of us. You know, he wrote most of the New Testament. He gets to the ground, runs away like a refugee in the night, comes to Jerusalem, and he's rejected by the church there. Like, like, don't miss this. It's someone walking through the door, us all screaming in terror and running away. Like, that person doesn't feel too good about themselves, correct? Like, like there's no way that that person enjoys, like, oh, wow, I feel really welcomed by this body. But we see that Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement, brings him in brings him in and and encourages and puts his neck on the line and says, this man is the real deal. I've heard the stories. I've seen the life change. And he's there in Galatians again. He says he was there for 15 days and they tried to kill him. So he he goes off to Tarsus. And we know from the rest of of Saul and Paul's life, it's, it's not the easiest. Bit by a snake, shipwrecked, stoned a couple times thrown out of cities, gets up, dusts himself off, and keeps moving forward. He continues. He he writes in his letters, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have continued with the mission that the Lord has bestowed upon me. There is no off-season. There is no retirement from what God has called me to. That's the lifestyle that Christ sets him on. That's the passion and the zeal that he chases because he was changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the the service, I asked, "Is is this normal? Should this be the conversion experience of every person who calls themselves a believer? argument's yes. 
Don't get me wrong, I don't think you're going to be driving home on 94th and a blinding light make you fly off the road. But the aspects of his conversion are the proof of a life given to Christ in our own lives. All believers have been confronted. We've all been commissioned. We've all been changed. And we all must continue. And every one of us, at some point, if we call ourselves a follower of Christ, we were confronted about our sin. No matter how good we thought we were or how bad we thought we were, Christ held it up to His holy standard and we looked on ourselves and said, I cannot stand before the holiness that is the Lord. We were confronted. But just like Paul, we are commissioned. This, we may not have the, the, the God-given ministry of being a missionary, of proclaiming to, to thousands, of millions of people. But we are all commissioned. Acts 1.8 is for the church, not just the apostles. Matthew 28 is for all of the believers. He has given authority to all of us so that we may go and proclaim His name. We've all been commissioned. And a believer should be changed whenever coming into relationship with the Lord. And we must continue. There's no season where we say, I tried really hard for a little bit, and now I'm just kind of lax. It's not just a young man's game. It's not once you have your family. It's not once you get your career. We must continue in this effort. It's all of our, our calling. It's, it's the role that we've all been given. Maybe you're not a Paul. But maybe you're an Ananias. I can't tell you the name of the man who won Billy Graham to Christ. Who, who preached the gospel to him for the first time. But boy, am I glad that he did. Boy, are thousands glad that he did. Ananias, one of the most unsung heroes of the, of the Bible, we cannot glimpse the, the ramification that Paul had on the church. The thousands, the millions. We're all here today because he made an effort to reach the Gentile, to reach the non-Jew. It's because of one man's faithfulness to go somewhere that he didn't want to go. Or a Barnabas, a man who saw a person down on his luck and said, I will bring you in and encourage spur you onward as he did for the rest of Paul's life. We may not be the, the, the head honcho, the, 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 the keynote speaker, but we all have our role to play in this. Church, we have walked through and seen the might and the power that God can do whenever a group of believers just normal, everyday churchgoers devote their lives to Him. It changed the world. It still is. Our calling is the same as Paul's. Our conversion should be the same as Paul's. We're all confronted. We're all commissioned. We're all changed. And we all must continue. Let's pray together.
Jesus, Lord, thank you that you are the same God today that you were in the story we read. That Jesus, just as you were sitting on your throne, as you arrested Paul, as you brought him to his knees to see his sin before you, you are doing the same today. That the miraculous conversion of a lost sinner can happen the same this morning. Lord, I pray that we believe that. God, I pray that we surrender to that. Father, and I pray that all of us, we all must ask ourselves, am I continuing? Have I let off the gas? Have I missed my my commission, my role? Lord, spur in me a new fire to continue the ministry that you've bestowed upon me. I can have your attention just this, as we move into our time of response. Cody's going to begin to play and sing. And I just, I ask that you take this time to do business with the Lord. Maybe this morning you're being confronted. Maybe like Paul, you have, you have felt a prodding for weeks, for months. You've lived under the conviction. And if you're honest with yourself, you've been miserable. I've been there. It's a, it's a hard, hard place to be. I pray that you surrender this morning. Maybe this morning, like a blinding light, the Lord brought you to your knees. I pray that you surrender this morning. Pray that you look on what the Lord's commissioned you to, to declare His name, to proclaim His gospel. How have you been doing in that? Have you continued despite setback, despite hardship? Or look at your life and can you really say, I've changed after coming into a relationship with the Lord? Salvation does not happen apart from transformation. It's the same event. Meeting the Lord of the universe will change you. Maybe you've just neglected your role as as an Ananias, as a Barnabas. You may say you're a small player, but you can make an impact. I I beg of you to not neglect that role. As Cody plays and sings, I I just pray that you respond this morning.